0: In 2003, I had a crazy idea. I saw kids on the street and doing drugs. I wasn't part of any organization. I wasn't a mentor. I never actually got involved with any kids at risk at the time. And for some reason, I saw some kids that I knew a little bit, and I had a crazy idea. I said, what if we opened a home, we kind of adopted them, we took them 365, 24-7 under our care, and we put them in a program where they can all work and be successful, save up money, and have fun? And everybody made fun of me, pretty much. It sounds like a crazy idea, I'm going to take kids off drugs, kids are on drugs on the street, and I had a rule, no drugs, and I had a rule, you have to be in bed on time, and a bunch of rules, and why would anybody do this, and why would it work? I ended up finding a home, to so, make a long story short, and kids started to move in. Three, four, five kids. Now, out of the thousands of kids on the street, most kids wouldn't move in. So I wasn't getting the worst, worst kids as far as their situations, because a lot of kids walked in and they said, as good as it looked, and it was a dream come true for them, and it was certain success, but most kids can't handle that. It was for the kids who were, Shabas Shabbos, Bifrahesia, doing drugs for years, but they reached a certain place where if somebody would offer them a chance, they would at least be able to take that chance. So they really were on the bottom, but not as uh, as bottom as the other kids who wouldn't even take that chance, even if it came on a silver platter. So we moved in these kids, and I developed my own ideas. I had no training and um, no experience. Basically, this is a dumb idea. I don't recommend it. Learning on the job, but at the time, it was a long time ago, we were all learning on the job. Pretty much all the guys who got on the streets and just did whatever they did was all learning on the job. Even the therapist at that point was really the beginning, and we were all learning on the job. So I jumped in. We took about three, four, or five, or six kids a year, and... um, was very hard, is very difficult, and a lot of surprises came out of that. From the day they came in, they were clean. None of them ever went back to a life of drugs on the street. And another big kiddush was that at the end of the year, when they graduated, nearly all of them graduated completely from it. Now, this was a shock on both ends of the aisle. From the therapy world, they couldn't understand why would kids, how could kids stop doing drugs? Now, there wasn't heroin in those days so much, so it wasn't heroin crack addicts, but everything until there. We had guys doing smoking weed five times a day for years. They moved in, cold turkey. Everybody quit cold turkey, cocaine, cold turkey. Um, What was in those days? I think it's pre Molly, So, shrooms, cold turkey. So here we had an experiment of about 35 guys, and they all quit cold turkey and never went back to a life of drugs, Ever. How can that work without any AA, without any treatment, without any, uh, doctor or nurses, no withdrawal, what, what happens? They all moved in, they only moved in if they had a job, which I got for most of them, nine to five, nine to six, ten to six, that type of job. And how did they all manage to stay clean until today, thirteen years later? That was one question. On the other hand, I didn't open this up to make kids from. I had no idea that kids can become from. I had no experience and I had no agenda. I thought they would stop in, um, probably last a month or two, and then one day in ten years they'll say, "Oh, I remember you." And some biker will pull up and be like, "Yeah, you once gave me a hot kosher meal." I had no idea. Now the big chiddush of them becoming from was there was no Yiddish guide in the place, there was no shacharis minchamarev, there was no learning Torah at all, no Shabbos. The house was closed on Shabbos because I did, I did I couldn't supervise them. So they would come to my house on Shabbos and then to friends of mine when they became a little bit more, uh, menschlich, I would say, because they were living, a lot of these guys were living on the street for so long. So they would start off in my house for Shabbos and, uh, go out for a cigarette. You know, I can't force you to be with, to keep Shabbos. So they would come and they would, uh, sit at my table and I had my four kids. Another crazy thing. I raised my kids like this and they would see one after another. These guys would move in. And I'd say, oh, like, almost like a new brother. Here you go. It's part of the family. Kalamite trips was my kids together with these guys, uh, smoking and, uh, just not like we are. Mikhail Shabbos, Mikhail Yantiv. And my kids grew up, you know, in the beginning, they'd be like, you know, after the fish, these guys would go for a walk. After the soup, they would go for a walk, you know, after a while, then my kids would be like, why do they keep going for walks in the middle of the meal? I said, well, they're very health conscious. You know, and then when they were four, five, six, seven, eventually they looked out the window and they were like, he's smoking. I said, yeah, not everybody keeps Shabbos. Some people smoke. And our job is to love them and to accept them and to help them get happy. And they would see these guys come in looking cool with the leather jackets and the necklaces. And then now they see I have a bag of all the necklaces and piercings that people gave me when they decided they don't want it anymore. And this was done without anybody being paid only volunteers which made a big impact on the guys because they knew at the end of the day we care about you, nobody's paying us to be here it was done without any hashbah, there was no rebba there was no learning, no heebie jeebie stuff, I didn't take them around to Kfarim it was done without any coercing Any, any um, it wasn't even any schmoozing I never spoke to them you know, maybe you should put on tzitzis, tzitzis is a good thing fill in, you should try to connect there was no Kirov done on these guys in Home Sweet Home whatsoever, and no therapy done on these guys whatsoever. So from both sides of the aisle, from the Rabbanim on one side, the Torah Velt, the Esha Torah guys, the Kirov people being Makar people, they're scratching their heads. How does that happen? And from the professional world also, how does that happen? Now, what I did do was, after they were stable, clean, happy, healthy, from Then, they felt part of a community. At that point, I told them, now you go for therapy. Because while you feel like your life is falling apart and everybody hates you, while you're outside at night because you can't go home because your parents threw you out or they don't want you home, while you feel like a nobody, there's nobody to do therapy on. After they felt success, they felt love, they felt like humans, they actually felt like really good humans because they always said, in HSH, we're all VIP. We took these kids from the bottom. We put them on our shoulders. And everywhere I went, they all knew these are Avi's boys. Everywhere we went, we had five volunteers, five kids, ten guys walk in to go bowling. It's a mountain. It was fun. A lot of love, and the volunteers who, I created a system, so we had volunteers for Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, every night, and from week to week they would manage to see the difference. And I learned a lot from these kids. What I learned was, first of all, they're not bad. That doesn't seem like such a Kiddush today in 2016, but in 2003, 2004, we didn't really know what's going on with these kids. Maybe they somehow are Asa, Yishmael, Erev Rav, some people call them, Bums, Aisvarfs, Rishayim, Bali Taiva. And all of a sudden I just, by watching them, by giving them an environment, and then watching them totally transform, I learned that they're not bad. I learned that they're probably a lot better than I am. I learned that they have no chasar in or chasar in They don't need to know anything. They grew up just like I did. They know how important Shabbos is. They know how important it is to shower. They know how important it is to go to sleep on time and to wake up on time and to be productive and be functional. They didn't need any information from me. What they needed was a tremendous amount of somebody saying that I care about you and I believe in you. And I don't think that just because you're not functioning or doing the right thing that you became bad. You're not a kid at risk. You're not a problem. You have problems. We all have problems. Maybe you have bigger problems, or maybe it's hurting you more. I find that these kids have the biggest hearts. It's not a mistake. When your heart's so big, it could hurt much more. And they're very sensitive. They're very caring. I learned that they just need encouragement. And when you encourage somebody, you get the best out of them. When you give them logic about why what they're doing isn't the best thing for them, they crumble. Because they don't need your logic. Just like anybody who ever tried going on a diet, the last thing you need is logic. You need encouragement. And when you're about to fail that diet and eat that piece of cake, you don't need your spouse coming in and explaining to you all the reasons why you're going to regret that tomorrow. So I'll give you an example. Because I see everybody shaking their head and smiling about the diet example. So imagine... (laughs) Imagine that you go on a diet, diet number 422, you spend all the money, you buy the shakes, you get the blenders, you have the different sized cups and mugs and uh, all different equipment. You're very excited about it. And you grate the first week, the second week, the third week, you have a really hard day. Extreme stress, you're going out of your mind, and in the middle of the night you can't sleep, and you go downstairs to the kitchen, and right there is this delicious, delicious, you fill in the blank, whatever free Boston cream, chocolate, um, whatever. And you're like, no, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it. You have this whole fight with, with, with yourself back and forth, okay? After half an hour, finally, you open up the, the thing, you take it out, and you're about to eat it. And right then, your spouse appears. Your spouse is right there. Now, what most spouses, or spice, would do is that they would say, what are you, crazy... What's the matter with you? Don't do it! This is horrible! And they would give you a whole speech. Some of them would actually explain to you how you're going to regret this, how this is a dumb move, this is not what you want. Other people would say, I knew you are going to do this, I knew it was a waste of money, you always fail, I knew that when you started with the shakes and the things, it's only going to last two or three weeks, you can never commit to anything and degrade you. The bottom line is that no matter what the tea pull treatment that they come up with, by the time they turn around and go upstairs... You're not just gonna take one bite, you're gonna eat the whole thing. Why? The answer is because when you went on the diet, that showed that your brain is in the right place. You know that you don't wanna look like that, you know you wanna look like that, you know what's gonna get you there, and you wanna try. The fact that you failed, you don't need someone to tell you all the reasons why you're a failure. What you need is encouragement. So, I wonder, what happens if your spouse tells you, when you're like that, <laughs> Because, you know, you're awesome. You did amazing. Today you had so much stress, I don't blame you. I would eat the whole thing. So go ahead, enjoy it. You deserve it. Tomorrow's another day. Now, what would happen? So in this little experiment, I think we all know that even if we would eat it, we're not going to lose the diet. Tomorrow's another day. You have tremendous backing and support that you feel supported. And that can give you encouragement that after you fall you can move on. But I think most of us know that we wouldn't eat as much and maybe not even need to eat it at all. Because the reason why we're weak is because we're missing support. The reason why we can be strong is when we have support. And sometimes support means the opposite of what people think support is. Support is not telling you why you're wrong and why you're stupid and why you're evil and why you're dumb and why you're a mess-up and why you're a failure. Support is understanding that you can be a superhero That you could be strong and yet do awful things. Things that are not in your best interest at all. And that I don't, I don't look at you and judge you at those times that you fail. I don't look at you when you're crumbling and when you're messed up. And if I look at you with the eyes that you're a hero, then you're able to become a hero. I also learned something else. I learned that the reason that they are messed up is for a very good reason. Please understand that I want to be the shliach of the therapy world and the professional world because I had no agenda going in to working with these kids. And therefore, I can report to you things as if you had gone through this process yourself. So when you are in a session with someone for 45 minutes, for an hour and a half, once a week, twice a week. In that setting, first of all, there's many, many people who won't, many, many kids who won't even go there. And in that setting, it's very limited. Because first of all, you're getting paid. That's a big X. Second of all, you're getting paid usually by their parents. They don't trust adults. They take secrets to the grave. And the mantra, I mean, I know these kids and working with them is never trust anyone over like 16. You trust your drug dealer because when you call him and you need him he's there within five minutes and you trust your buddies because you'll die for each other even when you're wrong one of the home street home guys told me that when he was um, in uh, on the streets he was a Monroe boy and he was living on the streets for three years he said I did such crazy things I don't even know what I was thinking I don't understand what I was thinking and he went into pomegranate and he stole sushi he stole everything he was a ghana. A guy who took him in off the street, took him in and said, you could stay here for free, but you follow my instructions. And he taught him how to steal. He would go into a department store, wrap silk scarves around him, about $500 worth. He was a big guy. He was able to wrap a lot of scarves. And he would walk out. And the guy would take the scarves, sell it for hundreds of dollars, give him 50 bucks. He could stay in my house another night. And he became a Ghana. And he told me that the mentality was he had a friend that got into a fight with somebody. He said, I jumped in there and I was going to kill the other guy. He goes, my friend was totally wrong. But you're totally dedicated to your friends. You never rat. You never rat. You never tell. You never do anything with adults. The system is broke. The system does not work for you. And adults are your enemy. Especially in the people, the adults that you put your faith in growing up from people. Especially a guy with a beard. Those guys are off the charts, off off the limits. When the guys moved into home street home, they learnt after a pretty short while that, you know, okay, all Jews are evil besides Avi. Okay, all Jews are evil besides Avi and Chaim and Yitzi, And then this would go on. And one after a couple of months, I would say, it was a very close, a big Rosh Hashivah, was a close friend of mine, and he would be the first place that I would send them. And and they said, I'm not going to know Chassid with a Shreimel. These guys had a lot of pain. I said, don't worry, you'll be fine. That was one spot. By the end of Shabbos, they had such a great time. He had such a big heart that they said, okay, all Chasidim are evil besides him. And then it was all people are evil besides him and him and him. By the end of the year, they realized there are some evil people and there are some good people. And from now on, we're just going to hang out with the good people. Just avoid the evil people. That was one of the lessons I learned. The last lesson that I learned was very painful for me because, as I said, I spent thousands and thousands of hours with these kids, scrapped them off the floor, changed their (laughs) lives. They walked out healthy and from somehow I don't know why and years later almost all of them at the right time that they felt comfortable opened up to me and told them that they were molested as uh, young children five, six, seven, eight years old now I have no agenda I don't push this concept I'm telling you as a shliach what happened I sat with the first guy and he tells me I was 8 years old and he told me the whole story why did he open up to me? Because I saved his life. Because he would die for me. Because he was stable, he was healthy, he was clean, he was from, and he wanted to be like me. He's married today, living in Lakewood, has kids. That's not like me, but close enough. Better, a lot better than me. And then the next kid comes in and tells me, I was molested, I was six, I was seven, eight. One after another, after another, they're opening up to me. Some of them, five, six years after I met them, because they're still in my life. One story that I remember specifically, this kid moved out of Home Street Home, got married, from Erlach, He was a Ghanif and now he like pays taxes and stuff that he never thought that he would ever do. When I, when I paid this, this kid, when he, when I met him, he gave me his car and in his car was a gun. And I, I don't, I didn't allow cars in Home Street Home. So when he gave me the keys, I knew I got him. It was so hard for him to give up his car and his gun. And we parked the car and got rid of the gun. And he moved in. And it turns out that this big Russia that they were... He was banned from the whole... From Kiryat Yel. I first went to the Badem at Setsniyist and I told him, Listen, I know you're chasing him now, but let Home Street Home be the Ari Mikla. If we can't help him and he leaves, then you can kill him. Then you can break his legs or do whatever you do. But let me try to fix him. And the threats stopped then and he came in. And he's one of my biggest successes. He's a doll. Sweet kid. He's married today. Kids. And a couple of years later... He called me up, Avi. I need to see you. In the middle of the day. I know he has a good job, and all of a sudden, smack in the middle of the day, I need to see you. Emergency. Came to my office. Tells me the following story. I called up my mother. I said, "Mommy, what's the name? What's new?" And she said, "Yeah, everyone's tumbling because there was this big, huge molester guy that was supposedly going to sit for a million years. There were like thirty complaints about him, and one of the famous cases. And today, they set him free." So everybody's stumbling about it and it's like uh, people are happy because Baruch Hashem this guy is free. And he said listen to this okay Ma I gotta go. Hung up the phone. He's at this point probably 26 from for five years three years married stable great relationship with his mother Ma I gotta go. Didn't say anything. Comes to me tells me the story and then he has tears strolling down his cheeks and, and he says How could they be happy that they let this monster go? And I turned to him and I said, Chaim, how do you know he's guilty? He said, he's the first one who molested me. I was seven years old. And here you have the story of sexual trauma, which is unbelievable. He would not tell anybody. He went out of control at 13, 14, 15, 16. His family thought he was crazy. The whole city thought he was nuts. He was the biggest rebel ever. From all the big rebels. There was a lot of Satmar rebels. He was the... He had a gun. He had a gun in his car. The sweetest, nicest, most, least dangerous person in the world. His whole life is ruined. He doesn't understand why. Never connected it. Never told anybody about it. His parents suffered for years with this kid. Never had a clue of why he was such a mishodhana. How many therapists did they bring him to? And professionals. And Rabbanim. And how many people did they go to for advice? And they tried everything and begging him and pleading, rewarding good behavior, consequences, rules, boundaries, and nothing worked. And he never said anything. Even now he could have said, Ma, he molested me. Wouldn't say a word. I was the only person in the world that he felt comfortable to tell this to. And so on and so forth. So what I learned was, which nowadays is more common, is that these kids are hurting. They have a story of trauma and abuse, and if you don't know what the story is, then it's probably a lot darker than we can imagine. I've never met a kid who was bad, evil, didn't understand the idea of sleeping by night and being up during the day. These are not hard concepts. They know how to be functional. They know how to be healthy, and they know how to be from. And the whole thing of kids at risk, in my experience, is just a big misunderstanding. They're misunderstood because they don't say why they're hurting. We misunderstand them because we don't understand why they're acting crazy. We look at them as if they're bad. They act worse. We try to control them. That makes them worse. We get more control. That makes them worse. And the more consequences we give them, the further we are from ever knowing what the truth is. One of the miracles about twisted parenting, about TP, which we'll get to later, is that we have dozens and dozens and dozens of parents who call me usually about two to three years after coming to me, and they say, Abba, you were right. We thought, can't be our kid. No symptoms that we saw. Can't be. Impossible. I was a stay-at-home mom. We always took the kids off the bus. How could it be? He would have told us. He would have told the therapist. He would have told his Rebbe, his mentor. And I get those calls years later. You were right. Now why are these kids breaking and shattering the statistics and telling their mommy and daddy? That's because the parents are being trained by me to create an environment where the child feels so much trust, so comfortable, at home, reversing the years and years of mistrust in his parents, that they can go ahead and share their deepest, darkest secret. Of course we can understand that the rufua at that point comes much quicker. Okay, so the first day of my training with parents, eight hours, and I established this fact, I have a long presentation about four hours about trauma and addiction, And it's very it's very important. But since this was posted as, we want to find out what Twisted Parenting is all about, I'm skipping that for today. If anybody's interested, you can reach out to me. Maybe we'll do that a different day. And I'm starting from day two. Day two is once we establish the fact that we're dealing with a kid who's what I call a kid, a kid in pain. Who establishes that? When I get calls from parents, the first thing I do is I have an hour conference with them. 90% of the calls that I get, and if they're calling me, it's really bad. 90% I send away. I don't deal with kids still in yeshiva, with derech khal. I don't deal with kids still have lavush, unless there's a special reason. Basically, I'm dealing with kids after they're ready, not going off the derech. There's no derech. They're not at risk. They got nothing else to risk. They're off and they're gone, and everybody else gave up on them. Most of the parents coming to me, many, I should say, of the parents coming to me, like this past week, were advised by professionals and Rabbanim that you can't continue like this and you got to lock the kid out. This past week, one family was told to lock the kid out, and they did, and the other one was in the middle of emancipating their child, which basically means divorcing your child, which is <coughs> very extreme stuff. And Baruch Hashem, if we get the, the success that we had until now, that neither of them will have to do any of that. Not because they're going to live in a matzah where they can't live, but because we know how to de-escalate the situation to the point that they don't even want to throw out their kid. When I have groups of parents together and Rabbanim or professionals come, like when Dr. Torski was here, Rabbi Dr. Abraham J., I have parents raise their hands. How many of you wanted to throw your kid out when you came to me? Either did or wanted to or was thinking about it or considering it. All the hands go up because that's what I deal with. How many of you would still consider it or want to? None of the hands are up. And it does, this does not mean that they're not dealing with a difficult situation. This doesn't mean that they're not in a lot of pain. But they don't want to lose their kids anymore. So, from the 10% that I take, I only take things that I call P'Kloth Nefesh. But that's not enough. Every parent is required to have a handwritten letter from their paisik, their dying, their Das tired, their Rebbe, That the matzav is pikuach nefesh. And that the rav is going to pass in any silence that come up. And that the rav takes achrayas to be the mashkiach to make sure the family is doing everything al-piter. We're going to get to all of that later. So what we have here is a very extreme way to deal with extreme situations. What about using some of these ideas in earlier stages? Perhaps. That's not my field and I wouldn't go there. Some people are going to take this information and figure out how to prevent kids from going off the derech or how to give parents guidance when their kid starts to go off the derech. Maybe it'll work. Maybe it won't. I don't know. It's not my experience. My experience is only dealing with after everything else fails. When I get those calls from the first 90% of people that I don't take, I tell them to call therapists. Call Rabbanim. Be normal try to do things that are not extreme and cuckoo and crazy and only if everything else fails and you have no choice then you give me a call the parents who have come to me have gone as a group of 300 families to thousands and thousands of everyone professionals, askanim, rabanim. between all of them they've gone to probably so many, so many people the advice that they got didn't work for their situation If the advice that's normal doesn't work for the situation and the kid keeps getting worse and the situation keeps getting worse, that's when they call me. So I'm starting over here from the basis that we're dealing with Pikuach Nefesh. Please keep that in mind. We're dealing with a kid who can die. We all know and we all mourn that since Rosh Hashanah there were 78 suicides and overdoses in Klal Yisrael. None of us ever heard anything like this in the history of the world. When we grew up, this did not exist. Who ever heard of one person committing suicide? Five, ten, seventy-eight since Rosh Hashanah. What's going on over here? So we need to figure out what is going on. What can we do as professionals and as community and as families to save their lives? This is Avi Fischoff and I can be reached at twistedparenting at AOL.com.